So we are in a series that we launched last week entitled Praxis. It's a new series for us. It's going to take us, I think, through most of September. We'll see. We try not to put a hard stop. We try to be open if the Holy Spirit wants to take us in a little bit different direction uh, when, we, when we start a series. But we think it's going to take us through the most of September. And just to give a, let's just give a little bit of recap. I'm going to do a little bit of recap each week because each week is going to build on itself because this sermon series Praxis is one of the four parts of our comprehensive discipleship model, and I'll, and I'll hit that in a later week to kind of give you, we'll pull back for that 30,000-foot that view. So, so this, this is the statement I introduced you to last week, that you and I must decide what we believe is waiting for us after we die, right? It's critical. Because what we believe about that day should ultimately determine how we live out our lives between now and then. Me- meaning that all of us are on a timeline. I'm 56. I'm further on my timeline than many of you, right? We, we, I'm past halfway. I'm okay with that. At some point, there's going to be a, a, a day in time that's going to be my last day. Meaning that today, this day in August, And between that last day are all the days that I have left. What I believe is going to happen to me after that last day, what I believe about that should be instructive. It should inspire me in how I choose to live and what I choose to do with the time that I have remaining. What we believe about that day should ultimately determine how we live out our lives between now and then. Matthew 16, 24 to 27, Jesus tells us what's going to happen on that last day. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, right? If you try to do it your way, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? but lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? Speaking about that eternal part of who you are. For the Son of Man, here it comes, will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds, according to their deeds. We know that on that last day, you and I, after we die, we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. We're going to to be judged according to to our deeds. I introduced you last week to Romans 2, 5 through 11. If you weren't here last week, you could go back. I'm not going to reread that, but Paul and Jesus echo each other here on this idea of judgment. We're spending some time on this because if you've been around church for any amount of time, it might be that you've bought into the mythology that if you're a devoted follower of Christ, that you're not going to be judged. And I would say respectfully and humbly, that's not true. That, that, that heaven is promised to us based on grace We don't earn our way into heaven, but once we get there, all throughout the New Testament, through the teachings of Jesus and through the teaching of the early church fathers that are given to us from Acts all the way to Revelation, it talks about a coming judgment based on our deeds. We are a firm believer in salvation by grace. We believe in what are called the five solas. If, if, you're in that, if, you're, if you're a theological junkie, maybe you're familiar with different theological streams. One is Reformed theology. We are not a Reformed theology holy church, but there's some things about Reformed theology I support, like the five solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The five solas. I believe in those things. Right? It means that heaven comes to us not by what we do, 
but by what Jesus did for us on the cross. We believe in salvation by grace. But Jesus himself and all the apostles says, hey, even still, our access to heaven is by grace. There's a judgment. There's a conversation that we're going to have based on the life that we lived and what we did with the salvation that Jesus paid such a great price for us. It's important that we understand that good deeds don't make up for being a bad person. It's not accounting. It's not like getting your taxes done every year where you're, you, you, you want to make sure that you've, 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 you've given into the system the way that you're supposed to so, so that you're, you're not punished. Right? That's, that's not how it works with Jesus. Now, now, the Bible does not tell us specifically what kind of rewards are going to be meted out, but it talks about rewards. It does not say specifically what's going to come by way of an outcome. I think he did that on purpose. I think he wants us to live well because there is a judgment, and that's supposed to be enough for us, that we're going to have the opportunity to create a sense of fatherly pride in the heart of our Father. Good deeds don't make up for being a bad person. Romans 2, Matthew 16, both talk about this phrase, according to our deeds. Jesus used, as last week we talked about, a different word than Paul uses. Paul uses ergon. Jesus uses the word praxis, and praxis means that these deeds, they characterize us, meaning that they're not just good deeds that are flowing from a bad person to make up for being bad or to anesthetize our conscience. It means that these good deeds flow out of who we are. They characterize us. The good deeds come because of the good in us, because of who Christ is in us. For too many people, churches have become places where people want someone to tell them all the right things to do and all the wrong things not to do. Can I just tell you that I have found in over 20 years of pastoral ministry that if we teach people how to be virtuous, most of the rest takes care of itself. If we teach people how to be virtuous, most everything else follows. If you've been in our parenting class, this is a familiar idea for you. When our kids are really little, we say, hey, you've got to give them the do's and the don'ts. It's about structure. It's about order. It's about do what I say when they're really little. But as they mature, as they're toddlers and they develop and intellectual ability to understand the why behind the do's and the don'ts, then we should begin to shift to what we call the moral reason why. Because we're trying to teach our children to do good, not because it's on a list, but because the good is born out of the virtue that's inside of them. We, we want them to do good for love of virtue and not to avoid consequence. There's, there's tests that you can take. It's called, it, it means that you have an objective conscience. When I took it, I scored really high because I grew up in a home that didn't spend a lot of time talking about the moral reason why and being this idea of doing the right thing for love of virtue. My, my whole childhood was all about consequence avoidance. And, 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 and you bring that with yourself into adulthood, in your workplace, into your relationships. You bring it into your faith and into your Christianity. Too, too many people operate in their relationship with Christ consequence avoidance as opposed to a love of virtue. If there is virtue that is in your life, not necessarily knowing all the do's and don'ts aren't as important because if you are a virtuous person, the do's and the don'ts have a tendency to take care of themselves. We want to be a church that teaches you how to be virtuous. It's like the old adage, right? You can give someone a fish or you can teach them how to fish. It's the same way with Christian living. So here's the phrase. The more I become like Christ in virtue, the more I become like him in deeds. 
The more I become like Christ in virtue, the more I become like him in deeds. Here's a couple of verses for you. It's in 1 John 2, 6. reads this way. It says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Meaning what? Following his example. Meaning what? Meaning that the deeds that we do should mirror the deeds that Jesus did, not just because we're parroting what we saw, but because we are becoming who he is. That Christ in us, forming and shaping us, will be evidenced by the things that we do and don't do. What's the next verse that's up here? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, right? This is a, a, a core one for us. That you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Some translations render it. But Pastor David was talking about this idea of community. This is one of the reasons why community is important in the local church. One of the reasons why I think God created local church is that he understood that, that once we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that we're on this journey towards spiritual maturity, becoming more like Christ. We have to have people in our lives that are a little bit farther along than we are and that we can step in and begin to follow them. And for all of us as devoted followers of Christ, we should have also some people that maybe we're a little bit farther along than they are and we're demonstrating to each other what it looks like to be virtuous. Can I just tell you that virtue is contagious? If, if you have ever worked in the nursery, you know that the opposite of virtue is contagious. If, if you've ever spent time in a preschool, if you've spent time in the school system, you with me? If there's not order and structure, then all of a, a sudden the, 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 the chaos can become contagious. The opposite is true. And then in spiritual community, as we look around and we see other people being virtuous, it awakens something inside of us for the same, to be virtuous people. Being virtuous doesn't have to be this question of, 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 of I, I, I don't know what that looks like. Jesus came to save us, but he also came to show us. He came to save us. But he also came to show us that during those 33 years of his life, especially those last three that are recorded for us, primarily in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is demonstrating for us what a virtuous life looks like. And we have what we call the five great growth lists in the New Testament that give us a comprehensive list of the kind of virtues that we're talking about. Me meaning that when God says to you and to me, be a virtuous person, he says, and let me tell you what that is. So that as we look at this list, as we're learning this list, which we introduced last week, I'm going to read it again this week, as, that you, begin, as you begin to familiarize yourself with that, you, you begin to look for these virtues as they should be growing inside of you. And I think what you'll find is as you begin and continue to read Scripture, begin if it's new for you, continue if you've been doing it, as you look at the life of Christ, you'll see that these virtues are demonstrated in Him. There, Matthew 5 3 through 10. Many of you are familiar with that, right? It comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. It's one of the five great growth lists of Scripture. We have Romans 12, 9 through 21. We have 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, which is the great love chapter. We have Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Now, many people are familiar with Galatians 5 because it's referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And then there's a list that's given. But for too many people, that's the only list that they ever have seen, not realizing, hey, there's four other lists that give us 
the full picture of the character of Christ. Then there's 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Years ago, I sat down with some pastors and some other friends, and we took these five lists, and we wrote them out on this massive whiteboard, and we made a comprehensive list of all the virtues that are listed in each. And then over the next few months, we put definitions to them and did some word study. And then we, we took out the overlap, because some of these lists overlap with each other. And, and what we found was that there were 24 that stood alone. And those 24 are what we've been teaching in this church for several years now. I like to say that if these 24 words were paints and you were an artist, you could use them to paint the perfect picture of the portrait of the character of Christ. The character of Christ is revealed to us through these 24 virtues. Let me read them again to you like we did last week. I'm not going to read the definition. If you don't have one of these green books, they're free. You can get it from somebody in a blue shirt at the end of the service. If they run out, we, we, we've got more. Authentic, content, hospitable, truthful, persevering. Wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, Honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. That's a good list, isn't it? How many of you, when I'm reading that, there's maybe one or two, and you're like, yeah, I don't do that one so well. Right? Anybody? Is it just me? Every time I look at that list, there's usually one or two where the Holy Spirit says, yeah, we, we should be working on these a little bit. It's, it's part of what James says. If you just read the Bible and that's all you do, it's not enough. It's like looking into a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you saw. But, but when we look into that and, and we begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us, he's, he, he's not criticizing us or condemning us. He's helping us. He, he wants us to see things about ourselves that need to change. He wants us to see things in us that are missing, things that are present that should be missing. The opposite of that 24, right? We, we could create the opposite list. That all of us should be moving forward through time. Something inside of us wanting to become more like Christ. Not just for the prize of virtue alone, but because we believe that good godly deeds flow from a virtuous life. We have this incredible story in Luke 10 that I want to read to you tonight. Many of you are familiar with it, even if you've not been around church or unfamiliar with the Bible, you'll, you'll be familiar with the title. It's, it's, called, it's, it's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then that phrase, right, there's, there's, in America, there's what we call Good Samaritan laws, right? That this is where that comes from. Meaning that if you stop to help someone in need, especially medically, that you don't know, right? It's called being a good Samaritan. The Bible has instructed our vernacular. Luke 10, 25 to 37. Let's, let's, let's read the whole thing. It's on, it's on three slides. It's a powerful story. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. Never a good idea, right? By asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit Eternal life. Now, this is important because the question is, is, about, is about eternal life. Jesus does not talk to him about grace. Hey, notice this, right? He's asked about Now, we believe that eternal life is 
comes from grace, but Jesus is trying to say it doesn't just stop there. Once we enter in, what we do and how we live still matters. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, right? So he asked, and who is my neighbor? Right? This, is, this is it, right? This is what we already talked about. Something inside of us that says, I just want a list of all the things that I'm supposed to do and all the things that I'm not supposed to do, right? It is the longing of every husband. Honey, just, I just need a list, right? But that's not how relationships work, not with each other, right? Because our, our wife doesn't want us to follow a list. Our wife wants us to act and not act based on our hearts because we're for her. You tracking with me? Hannah said yes, a resounding amen. <laughs> was it Jen? Was Jen? It was Jen. All right, all right. That was so good. Right? It's true. We carry this over, do we not, into our relationship with God? God, if you could, if you could just give me a list. It, it just give me the do's and the don'ts. This person is saying, Jesus, I just, and, and, and I think here, he isn't just saying, I want this list so I could live better. I feel like the implication of the story is this person is saying, because I really don't want to do more than I have to, right? Can you tell me who my neighbor is? Because I want to make sure I'm not wasting my time being neighborly to someone who doesn't count. Jesus does not like this kind of attitude. He didn't like it then, he doesn't like it today, right? Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story, as he often did. Jesus taught in stories. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I'm, I'm going to modernize, modernize this for you in a little while, because I think sometimes because we are distant by way of time, 2,000 years ago, we are distant by way of culture here in America, that was Israel, that we, we miss how provocative Jesus is in this story. I'm, I'm going to modernize it to help you in just a minute. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. I'm going to talk to you about the difference between a priest and a Levite. A priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Right? He's like, I don't have time for that. A temple assistant, or which a more accurate translation would be a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Same thing. Doesn't want to get involved. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Virtue, right? Virtue precedes deeds. It's good, isn't it? Okay, let's keep going. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, come on, I'll Venmo you later. You're with me? I'll, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor? You see what Jesus did here? 
Jesus does not answer the question based on how the question was asked him. He does not answer who the neighbor is. He asks him who was the neighborly person. Why is that? Because Jesus is saying, I'm not about just giving you lists. I'm about teaching you about virtue. Because if you are neighborly, guess what? You'll always know who the neighbor is. Who who was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, I, I know, I know. The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, and go and do the same. And really what Jesus is saying there is yes, and go and be the same. If you are neighborly, you will always know who your neighbor is. There was a substantial is not even a big enough word rift that exists racially between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. They despised each other. And this rift had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, tracing its way all the way back to a civil war. Sound familiar? When, when, when Solomon's son Rehoboam inherited the throne, he made some really bad choices. And that resulted in the nation of Israel being divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then as you move through history, there came a point in time where the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern kingdom, right? So there's already division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom based on the civil war. And then they warred with each other, right, for centuries. And then when the northern kingdom fell, the Assyrians did what many conquering nations did then, is they transplanted other people throughout their empire into this conquered territory because they want to dilute the culture. Because a diluted culture is a submitted culture. Right? And so, and then what happens is people begin to intermarry. And then what happens is religions begin to get mixed with each other. And then that happens for hundreds of years. And eventually the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. And then they're taken away in captivity. And then when the Jews are sent back to rebuild Jerusalem, guess what they find? They find that all of Israel are inhabited by people that have intermarried with these other nations. And all the religions have mixed together. Here we find ourselves continuing to move forward in time. And because of this animosity, right, the, the, the Jewish people saw themselves as religiously pure, as ethnically superior. Sound familiar? Right? Human history has struggled with racial strife from the beginning, and we should do better. We should do better. As you look into this story, Jesus is standing in an almost exclusively Jewish audience. You following what I'm saying here? 99% of the people that are in this crowd, they're Jewish. And he picks the person that they hate as the person who's good. You see what he did there? Jesus is poking them in the eye with his thumb. Right? He's, we, we, we're disconnected. Can, can I modernize it for you? Let me just modernize it. Let's pretend that Jesus tells this story today. And, and because the Jewish people were the dominant culture, we're going to play it out this way. Let, let's say that Jesus is in a church that is almost entirely white and votes almost exclusively Republican. Right? And as he's teaching... He tells the story, 
And the person who is good is a person of color who votes almost exclusively Democratic, and they have a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on. Are you tracking with me? You, you would say, who would do that? Who, who would be so provocative and confrontational? Who would be so antagonistic to a room full of people? Jesus, right? And, and, and we, miss, we, we miss this part of the text. Jesus is not confrontational for confrontation's sake. He's confrontational purposefully because he's trying to shake people out of their bias. And, and sometimes we have to be forced to see the good in other people that we auto, automatically assume could not be because they're different from us, ethnically, politically, socioeconomically. So Jesus says, let's stir the pot a little bit. Let's press them to see the world maybe as it is and not through the biases that they carry. I like the individuals that Jesus picks. He picks the priest. See, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and that the tribe of Levi, the Levites, were the ones who were assigned specifically for the sacred religious duties of their nation. And everybody who was a Levite was not necessarily a priest. They were the ones who were set apart even still for the most sacred of duties. So, so the priest in Jewish culture was the person who was supposed to be the most religious and the most spiritual. They were the spiritual leaders of their nation. So, so Jesus is looking at them and saying, hey, just because you have an office and a position that you were born into does not necessarily mean that you are virtuous by nature because good deeds flow from a virtuous heart. I like how he picks the Levite next. These are people, they didn't have the sacred duties of the priests, but, but they carried with themselves a sense of pride because of the purposefulness of their ethnicity. See, because even within Israel, each tribe represent, it represents its own racial class, its own racial group. And the Levites were important because when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and the plagues came through, and the last plague, right, which gives us communion, Jesus is our Passover lamb, and the firstborn of everybody in Egypt died that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home, both people and livestock and animals, right? We, we, we understand that story. We're familiar with that story. And what many people forget is that that act of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and the death angel passing over was just for that one generation. And then Levites were set aside as a living sacrifice for the rest of time until the coming of Christ. Living sacrifice, that sounds familiar, Romans 12. They were a living sacrifice for a nation so that the firstborn would never have to die until the firstborn of God would come and die for our sins. Everything about the Old Testament shouts the same thing. Jesus is coming, and he's going to die for the world. Everything about it. So Levites carry this sense of pride. I am a living sacrifice for my nation. Jesus says, hey, that's important. But if all of that doesn't bring you to be a virtuous person who does godly deeds, then you're not quite there. A virtuous heart produces 
godly deeds. Let me say it again. A virtuous heart produces godly deeds. It's going to come up on the screen for you. We come to heaven by grace, but once we get there, he is going to have a conversation with us about how we lived. And the good godly deeds that we do, it's not supposed to be because we're checking off of a list that someone gave us. It's supposed to be because it flows from our lives, because we are virtuous people, because we are yielding to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, changing us into the likeness and the image of Christ. These notes every week, we put them online, and so these are not going to appear on the screen. I'm just going to read them. There's Proverbs 3, Matthew 5, 2 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, and Hebrews 10. All of these talk about good deeds. Does the Bible talk about grace? Yes. But does it talk about works? Yes, it does too. All of these. Proverbs 3 talks about this idea. If, if we have a neighbor who is in need and it's within us to help, help. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, talks about this idea that our good deeds are a light unto the world. Right? Not pointing people to us, pointing people to Jesus. Because Jesus is supposed to be easy to find. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the coming judgment based on the life that we live. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 talks about not growing weary of doing good. Hebrews 10.24, my blue bracelet, Niger, right? That's one of their themes is provoking one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10.24. Let's recap. You and I must decide what we believe is waiting for us after we die. Because what we believe about that day should ultimately determine how we live out our lives between now and then. And if you believe what I believe, and if you don't, I hope this sermon series is going to get you there, that judgment is waiting for us all, that the more I become like Christ in virtue, the more I become like him in deeds. I've got a lot of things I want to do with my life. You've got a lot of things that you want to do with your life. Can we, can we just agree the top of that list for all of us, the top of that list for all of us should say, I want to become more like Christ tomorrow than I am today. By the time I get to the end, to the end of my days, I want to be more like Jesus then than I am now. Not just for the prize of virtue, that in and of itself, right? There's glory in that alone. But because or every good deed that God has assigned to me, guess what? Is going to flow out of my life, not because I have a list, but because I'm a virtuous person. A virtuous heart produces godly deeds. A virtuous heart produces godly deeds. We are convinced as a church that if virtue is going to grow in us, then we have the responsibility to create inside of us an environment of spiritual vibrancy. Where are all my green thumb people, right? If you're a plant person, how about a hand up? Anybody a plant person? Like plants, have plants? Everybody else is a killer of plants, right? There's just one of two. They either flourish under you, right, or it's bad, right? So let me, let me ask you this question. Let's give, me, give me the next slide. 
What is needed? Even if you are not a plant person, which is one of the frustrating things about not being a plant person, is that you know all the things, but you just, you can never get it right. You with me? You try and you try. But So if you, if you aren't a plant person, you still know what, what is needed for plants to grow. Let's, let's do a little participation as we're coming down the home stretch. Somebody over here, what's needed for plants to grow? Cam. Sunlight, yes. Water, sunlight, water. Somebody else. Plant food, yes, it needs plant food. Miracle Grow, we're all about it. The right soil, fertile soil. Somebody else, anybody in the middle? Plants? Worms, yeah, I'm with you. Ecosystem, right? Turning up that soil. Somebody over here, Maya? Love, yes. Plant, right? Plant people love their plants, do they not? You don't? No, but you know they need it, though. Oh, you withhold. You withhold, yeah. Patience. It's a lot of work, isn't it? And it takes time. You, this is a good list. Somebody else. Anybody else over here? Plant people? Not a plant person, but you know? Yes, climate matters, right? Don't put a palm tree in Alaska. It is, right? Are you with me? It needs to be in the right setting. Anybody else? Final? Anybody in the balcony? All right. Some, oh, we're not going to put that on the list. Jennifer said sometime pruning. Yes, absolutely, right? Sometimes you got to cut some things back. Attention, I like it. Carbon dioxide, right? People talk about talking to the plants. It helps them. Vanessa's the plant person in our family. I am not the plant person in our family. Let me read this, list, this, this statement to you. I want to suggest to you that virtues are no different than the gardens that have been planted. If you create a spiritually vibrant environment in your life, virtues will grow. If you create the environment, virtues will begin to grow inside of you. It's part of the natural spiritual world. Let me say it again. If you create a spiritually vibrant environment in your life, virtues will grow. And the consistent work of the 12 pathways, which I'm going to read to you in just a minute, are the keys to that spiritual vibrancy. They are the work of gardening for the soul. The work of gardening for the soul. I'm getting a resounding amen from Robbie. I like it. I like it. Scripture is reading and studying, memorizing, meditating on the Bible. Worship is outwardly expressing the joy that comes from knowing God. Prayer is regularly talking with God and interceding for ourselves and others, right? Just like what we did for Pastor Justin and Stephanie and their family earlier. Fasting, right? The Christian F word is sacrificing common things to focus on God. Gathering, engaging in community right here within the body of Christ. Relationship is being authentic with others to know and to be known. Reaching is sharing the hope of Christ's love through evangelism and outreach. Accountability is having someone that helps us reach our God-given potential. Isn't that a great definition of accountability? So good. Let me read that. Is having someone that helps us reach our God-given potential. Right? Someone that says to us, come on, you can do better. Rest is honoring the Sabbath and practicing healthy rhythms. Hello, church on Saturday. 
Generosity is having a heart to give freely and to offer help to others. Stewardship is being a good manager of all that God has entrusted to us. Service is meeting the needs of others with our gifts, talents, and time. All 12 of those pathways. We put them in a group together. We don't like them as a list that is ordered because people tend to prioritize and they say, as long as I'm doing the most important ones. If, if you look at the pathways that way, you will never have all 12 present in your life. The consistent work of the 12 pathways are the keys to, the, to spiritual vibrancy, the work of gardening for the soul. I'm going to invite Dom to come back up. He's going to play some keys for us. We're going to keep working through this series, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about these pathways, but we're also going to talk about the 12 principles that govern the 12 pathways, and that's going to be our focus over the next couple of weeks. Again, if you don't have one of these green books, they're free. You should get one from somebody in a blue shirt. We have them back there. I, I, want, to, I want to shift gears a little bit here as we're in the home stretch, because we're, we've made a commitment to come to this moment in every service, right, in 2023. Every service in 2023, we come to what we call our welcome home moment. Not because we're trying to welcome you to City Life Church. That's not what we're about. We want you to be welcomed into the family of God. We want you to be welcomed into the family of God. And we believe as a church, as many as, many of you do, even if you've never heard it explained like you're getting ready to hear it intellectually, you felt the truth of it in your heart, that every single person, we share the same deep longing inside of us, and that is to know God and to be known by Him. From the day that we were born, even Jamal and Madeline's precious little baby, right, Cleo, right, something inside of her already longs to know God. It didn't be known by him. All of us throughout our life carry this hunger and this desire. Now, this hunger and desire also represents our greatest dilemma. It's our greatest dilemma because we are born into this world separated from him, separated from him. And as we look back over to the story of our lives, we all have regrets. We all have things that we wish we had not done, things we wish we had, had not said, and, and we call that sin. You know what that sin does? We're born into this world separated from God, and that sin, it keeps us separated from God. And one day, just like we've talked about at length tonight, we're going to come to the end of our timeline. We're going to pass from this life to the next. And we're going to stand before God, and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And what we're saying as a church, collectively, there is a lament. There is a cry that there will be people on that day and it will be the first time they ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by Him. And it's too late. And we want to do what we can as a church to say, no, 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 you can know Him now. You can know Him today. The stakes are high because the smallest of sin in God's justice system is worthy of eternal death. And we can't get there on our own. We can't change ourselves. Enters Jesus into the story. The gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a favorite verse of ours. It's, if any person's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus says, I'll change you on the inside. I, I, I can change the desire of your heart so, so that you're going to want to do different things. You're going to want to live a life that's pleasing to God. Are you going to be perfect? No. But Jesus says, hey, guess what? I got all that covered. 
Because when I died 2,000 years ago on the cross, not only did I die for all the mistakes that you used to make, I've already died so that you can be forgiven for all the mistakes you're still going to make because all of us are still going to make plenty. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the power of grace. There is forgiveness. There is transformation. And then when we come to our end and we step into that moment of judgment, we're not stepping in front of a stranger. We're stepping in front of our Heavenly Father. We're stepping into a conversation with someone that we have known and have been known by throughout our days because Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. Jesus did everything that he's got to do. The only thing left is for us to accept that forgiveness, to hear what you just heard, you believe it in your heart, and then we make a vow of devotion to Christ. And in that moment when we make a vow of devotion, the Bible tells us that we're born into his family. And the journey of knowing him and being known by him begins. It is the great prize for us in this life. So stand with me. Because maybe you would say, Fred, as I look back over the story of my life, if you're part of our online community, you might be watching and, and you might say, Fred, I've never heard that explained before. There's a host that's willing to pray with you right where you are online. There's a button you can push. It'll take you into a private chat room. And I hope that you do. If you're here we're going to pray and close the service in just a moment, but I'm going to be down here at the front. Chuck and Penny, leaders here at the church, are going to be down here at the front. And if you're here and you're saying, I, I, I've never prayed with someone. I've never had that sense of knowing God and being known by him. And we'd love to pray with you tonight and do it here. Father, I pray for people that have lived their whole life and never had that sense of being welcomed home by you. I pray they would find it on this Saturday in August. In 2023, here at 311 Selden Road, or wherever they might be as part of our online community. So, Father, as we, as we go our separate ways tonight, I, I pray that there would be something inside of us that's hungry for more than the next meal that we're going to for supper. Not just the the hunger of our, our belly, but there would be an ache in our heart, a hunger to be a virtuous person. That if we've been that person that's been clamoring for a list, that we're going to leave that life behind and we're, we're, we're going to look for virtue, the 24 virtues. Believing Jesus that you didn't just came to save us, but you came to show us. Help us follow after all of your ways that every good deed that you have assigned to us, we know, will flow from the virtue that's birthed in our hearts through the pathways that we give ourselves to through all of our days. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody sit together.